Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Emily. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver, and today is the last Sunday of Advent. So if you're visiting or new or just joining with us, Advent simply means arrival. Advent is a season in the church calendar each year when we look forward to what we're promised in Scripture, that Jesus will arrive again. We observe Advent in the time leading up to Christmas, and it is connected with Christmas because in Christmas we look back to remember that God already sent Jesus once. So Christmas looks back and Advent looks forward. Advent was originally a season where followers of Jesus mourned over the darkness in our world and in our lives, and they longed for God's light to come and to break through the darkness. Advent is about waiting and anticipating and longing for Jesus to return. When Jesus comes back, he will make all things new and right and good again. He will transform this world into a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live with him there for eternity. So we wait and we long and we look forward to that day. This Advent in particular, we've looked at what Jesus himself said about his second coming. Over and over when he talked to his disciples about his return, he used this phrase, keep watch. Here's just one instance. In Matthew 24:42, Jesus says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus is telling his followers to be on the lookout. He's saying, you don't know when my advent, the full coming of my kingdom, will take place. So keep watch, be faithful, and always be ready for my arrival. And here we are, almost 2,000 years later, still waiting. <laughs> the past few weeks, we've been asking this question, what does it mean for us to keep watch today? We've acknowledged that a few decades ago, there was a big emphasis in the American church on keeping watch for Jesus' second coming. A lot of that was steeped in some well-meaning but misinformed interpretations of scripture, and it resulted in people making lots of timelines and predictions and books and movies about the end times that probably did more harm than good. On one end of the spectrum, there can be this intense focus on interpreting prophecies and signs and setting dates for Jesus' return, and we see that as misguided and unhealthy. But now, it seems we've swung the pendulum the other way, and on the other end of the spectrum, it's equally unhealthy. On the other end of the spectrum, we never think about Jesus' return. We never long for our world and our lives to be different. We never deeply consider the big questions of where or what history is moving toward. We've swung the pendulum, and now most American Christians don't think much at all about the end times or Jesus' second coming. Why is that? Norton suggested a few things. Maybe most of us don't think about these things because our lives are busy, or because end time stuff is strange and scary or confusing, and we don't want to become one of those people at the other end of the spectrum. And sure, we still do have a lot of questions. We don't know when Jesus is coming back or exactly how it will all go down. There is a lot of confusion and speculation, and so sometimes maybe it is easier to just not think about it. But maybe, if we're honest, most of us don't think about the return of Jesus because we're actually quite comfortable with how our lives are right now. From time to time, we experience brokenness in our lives or in our world, and we sense that things are not as they should be, but most of the time, we're not compelled to hope or long or yearn for something different because in general, we love our lives and our world as they are right now. We can't really picture anything different from our current world, and though we know that things aren't perfect, overall we feel pretty content. But the season of Advent is about longing and yearning and waiting and hoping. For those of us who are struggling right now, Advent meets us in that place. But for the rest of us who are more comfortable or content, Advent should jolt us. Advent should wake us up and create in us a deeper sense of longing for Jesus to come back. 
Because the truth is, Jesus' return is essential to our faith. I don't think I really understood that until I went to college. I grew up in the church and in a Christian home, so I thought I knew the Bible pretty well. But I remember sitting as a freshman in my very first college class, which happened to be a Bible class. And the professor began by outlining the whole grand narrative of Scripture. I was blown away. I didn't know how I could have been in church my whole life and never have someone put all the pieces together for me in a succinct way. So maybe this will be review for some of you. I sure hope it is. But for others, if you've never heard the big picture story of our faith, I want you to hear that today so you can see what an important role Jesus' second coming has to play. The big picture story of our faith starts with chapter one, creation. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.31 adds, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. It doesn't tell us when or how, but we're told that God created everything and it was good. We read that the first humans, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God, placed in the Garden of Eden, and they were given the job of being God's representatives on this earth, to be in relationship with God and then to show the world who God is and what he's like. Humans were in perfect relationship with God, with themselves, with each other, and with creation. The whole world was complete and at peace. The picture we get is that everything was good all the time, except that there was this one tree in the garden that was off limits, and humans had the ability to be tempted. Chapter 2 is the fall. This is where everything gets messed up. Humans rebel against God, and the consequence of that is that everything God created as good is now in some way distorted. Every key sphere of relationship is now broken. There's division between people and God, people and themselves, people and each other, and people and creation. This is the world we now know. Chapter 3 is Israel. We're painting with some really broad strokes here to understand the whole redemptive narrative of Scripture, but in Genesis 12 we read, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The key here is that God chooses a people for himself and gives them a mission. They are blessed to be a blessing. Just like Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and given the job of being God's representatives on earth, now Israel is chosen to take up that mantle. And long story short, they fail. Chapter 4 is Jesus' first coming. Jesus comes on the scene as the baby in the manger, and he's the only one who is able to truly, 100%, perfectly be God's representative on earth and show the world who God is and what he's like. Because guess what? Jesus is God. He's fully God and fully human. Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead to save us from our sins and bring us back into a right relationship with God. Humans' relationship with God that was broken in the fall now through Jesus has a way of being restored. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Rome, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is that simple, but this is not the end of the story. In Jesus' first coming, he initiates the end of the story. The dominoes are falling and can't be stopped. There's a theological term for this. It's inaugurated eschatology. It's used to describe the end of all things, and it means already and not yet. Jesus begins or sets into motion the end of all things, but God's grand story is still playing out today. Chapter 5 is the church. That's you and me. 
Jesus taught his first followers how to live as his representatives on earth. He reinstates that mission now for Christians taking up the mantle of Israel to be God's people in the world. And this is our part of the story. God's still at work in the world, and we have a part to play. At the heart of following Jesus is a call to love God and to love people. By that, everyone will know we're Jesus' disciples. By our love, we will show this world what God is like. And we're not left to do this on our own. God is with us now closer than ever through the Holy Spirit. God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower believers all over this earth to live out the mission of loving him and loving others and to work to help to reconcile and restore all that's been broken in this good world that he made. This is the part of the story that's playing out right now. But all of this is headed towards one final chapter, and that's the happily ever after. Every really good story has one. The best, most action-packed dramas are stories of redemption that end with a happily ever after. And the story that God is writing is no different. It's the original drama that we pattern all our stories after. His story is still unfolding, but we get enough of a glimpse of the end in Scripture to know how it's going to play out. In the end, Jesus wins. He comes back and defeats sin and death once and for all. When he comes back, he will finish what he started In his first coming, Jesus got the ball rolling on the redemption and renewal of all things. He made the way for humans to be brought back into a right relationship with God. And that was huge. That was the first check mark we see on the screen. But in the end, he will redeem and restore and renew all things. Heaven and earth will be intermingled, joined together forever, and everything will be set right. Norton read this passage from Revelation a couple weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. Revelation is a complex book, but it's the last book in the Bible because it gives us the fullest glimpse of the end of the story. It's written by one of Jesus' first followers and best friends, a guy named John. When John is an old man, he gets a vision of how this grand narrative of history that God's been writing from the beginning is going to end. In Revelation 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus says three times, I'm coming soon. And then the Bible ends with John saying, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the end of the story. Jesus is coming back. He's coming soon. Come Lord Jesus. I love to imagine what it will all be like after Jesus returns. Can you even begin to fathom living with God forever in a perfect world with no more death or mourning or crying or pain? The story that God is writing will come full circle and end the way it began with everything being good, but it will be even better because there will be no more temptation to sin. There's no way for humans to mess it up this time. The story started in a garden and ends in a city, and we get this glimpse of this perfect world where everything that has been broken by the fall is restored. Every key sphere of relationship is made whole, and the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated is fully realized. We're left with this picture of humans and God living together in harmony, happily ever after. I love this picture that John paints because it's not really the picture of an ending at all, is it? But of a new beginning, 
It's the final chapter of one book, but it's the beginning of a new story. When Jesus comes back and makes all things new, we will live in physical bodies on a new and better earth with God and with each other forever doing amazing things. Our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and creation will all be perfectly restored. Let's tease this out a bit. Let's take our relationship with God. He's the creator and the sustainer of this entire world, and he's the mastermind behind this story. When Jesus comes back, we'll be able to enjoy God and his endless creativity face-to-face forever. What do you think he'll create right before our eyes? I bet on the new earth there will be new colors, new tastes and smells that our minds can't currently comprehend. Can you imagine the technology that will be invented when we have eternity to play and explore and build and create with God? It's going to be amazing. Or take our relationship with each other, with other humans. Can you imagine a world where there is complete justice and peace? Can you imagine living in a place where there is no conflict, war, violence, hatred, inequity, racism, or poverty? Can you imagine being fully known and fully loved and having relationships with other people just be easy for a change? How about our relationship with ourselves? What would it be like to live without anxiety or fear, without stress, without guilt or shame? Can you imagine feeling fully comfortable in your own skin? Being completely at peace with yourself and feeling like you have absolutely nothing to prove? Can you imagine living in a body that always functions the way it was meant to? That isn't worn out or aging or in pain, but is full of energy and strength and beauty and vitality. And our relationship with creation, there will be no more pollution, no more natural disasters. Snakes won't be scary anymore on the new earth. We'll probably be able to ride lions. We'll build beautiful dream homes that won't need our constant attention because nothing will ever break. We've gotten so used to the way things are that we don't stop to imagine how it can all and will be infinitely better when Jesus comes back. So here's the big story again in a nutshell. God made the world and made everything good. The world got messed up and damaged by the fall. God sent Jesus to begin the restoration of all things. Jesus will come back and finish what he started. Someday, everything will be good again. And if we trust in Jesus as our Savior and follow him as our Lord, we will live with God in a perfect world happily ever after. That's the gospel. This is the good news of our faith. 21st century American Christians, we have got to lean more into Advent. We've got to care more about Jesus coming back. It's the best part of the story. It's the grand finale of the narrative that God has been writing throughout history. Think of it this way. We would never watch a really good movie for the first time and turn it off two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through without seeing how it ends. That would be so ridiculous. We know the ending of any good story is the resolution. It's the part where it all comes together and everything is good again. We don't want to skip that. We'd be missing the best part. My husband, Phil, and I have been watching some classic Christmas movies this year for the first time, specifically the Die Hard series. We have only watched one and two so far, and I hear that the rest aren't as good. But at this point, we're just going to watch them all. We are invested. But you would never watch a Die Hard movie and just stop it three quarters of the way through. No. If someone tried to turn it off before the end, you would grab the remote out of their hand. 
You'd be like, wait a minute, what happens? Do the hostages in Nakatomi Tower all die? Do the planes all crash? You wouldn't turn it off because you're waiting to see the grand finale where John McClane saves the day. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for you, but you've had like 30 years to watch these movies, so I don't actually feel that bad. We don't watch action movies or any good movie and turn them off partway through. We see them through to the end, and we love to watch the hero save the day. So why do we do this with the Bible? When we ignore the ending, we can't see the full picture, and we can't really understand the whole purpose and direction of our faith. I hope that we're starting to see why we should care more about Jesus coming back, why we should keep watch and eagerly anticipate and long for his return. But there's one more question I want to address today, and it's this. How do we keep watch? What do we do or what postures should we take in the waiting? Let's just be honest about the fact that waiting is hard. Being forced to wait means that something is out of our control, and we don't like that. We all like to be in control, and so we all hate to wait. My four-year-old Eva says this all the time when I tell her she has to wait for something. She says, but it's hard to wait. I love kids because they just say what we're all thinking. It's hard to wait. So what do we do while we're waiting? How do we keep watch? I'll offer a few suggestions for what this might look like, but first I want us to take a look at a passage of scripture that reminds us of an important truth, that we're not alone in our waiting. Let's read Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The author writes, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Then the author lists a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament who pleased God by their faith. Picking up in verse 13, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We read about that in Revelation, the new city God is preparing for the new earth. The author gives a bunch more shout-outs and then writes, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And then the author concludes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We're not alone in our waiting It's encouraging to know that we're in good company with so many others who through the centuries and millennia have been waiting for God to fulfill his promise, for him to come and save the day. We've had so many examples to consider of others who have waited, and what can we learn from them about waiting and keeping watch? Well, what does the author say? Run with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Our job isn't to count the days and make predictions and determine the exact time we think Jesus will come back. That's not how we keep watch. 
Our job is to join the ranks of countless others, the great cloud of witnesses who have kept watch before us, and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Here are a few suggestions for how to keep watch. The first is this, keep weeping. When we look around at our world and our felt reality here and now, one natural posture or response is to lament. Things are not as they should be. Let's not trick ourselves into thinking that they are or that this is as good as it gets. It's not. This world is broken and dark, and we shouldn't ignore that or pretend that it's not the case. We shouldn't be content with how things are or too comfortable here. Like the ancients recognized and were commended for, this is not our true home. So we keep watching and weeping and praying and mourning. We keep crying out to God and lamenting when things are messy and broken and hard. We live in a world that's dark and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. We can try to deny it and say it's not that bad, or we can try our best to fix it ourselves, but eventually we'll give up when we realize that the damage is beyond our ability to repair on our own. When we want quick and easy answers that don't exist, or we can't act because a situation is out of our control, sometimes there's nothing we can do in our waiting and we just have to lament. It's not our job to be the hero. God is the hero of his story. We can't fix this dark and broken world on our own, and we weren't meant to. So to keep watch means to keep weeping. This is not how things should be. We have a special service designed for us to keep watching this way together. This Wednesday, we have the longest night service. It's the longest night of this calendar year, the night where there's um, the least amount of daylight. So at 7 p.m., we'll be meeting here downstairs to acknowledge the darkness. This is not just for a service um, for people who are grieving personally this year, though it's certainly appropriate for that. But it's really one for all of us to participate in as we come together and mourn and grieve that Jesus is not back yet. And that the world around us is still dark. So I hope you'll join us for that. The second way we keep watch is to keep hoping. We mourn and we weep and we grieve, but not as people without hope. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and on the end of the story and all the good that's coming because that's how to not grow weary and lose heart in the waiting. As a parent, this gets very practical in the day-to-day. Parenting kids really makes you work out your theology if you haven't already because kids have a lot of questions and they expect you to have all the answers. My family was sick last week again and Eva asked me why we were sick. She said, did God make us sick? And she followed that up with, will God heal us? These are the moments when you have to pause and think, oh Lord, help me answer this one well and then you just give it your best shot. And in my best parenting moments, I recognize that these are also prime opportunities to help instill in my daughter an eternal perspective and a vision for the future. So in our house, we talk about the end times a lot. Last week when Eva asked, did God make us sick and will God heal us? I answered something like, God didn't make us sick. This world is broken and full of germs that made our bodies sick. That's not the way our bodies are supposed to work. Our bodies aren't meant to be sick, but someday, We'll be with God forever on a new earth where our bodies will never get sick again. Isn't that amazing? I'm so excited for that, aren't you? We mourn that we're walking around in bodies that are susceptible to illness. But to keep hoping means that this is the lens we're looking out of. That in the face of sickness, death, injustice, wars, violence, disasters, and anything else that's not right in the world we live in, we look through the lens that says this is not the end. This darkness will not have the final word. Jesus is coming back, and God's going to fix this. 
Embracing that eternal perspective helps us live now with so much hope and anticipation for the future. We have got to have our eyes glued to the end of the story. We need to think about the happily ever after. We need to talk about the happily ever after with our friends and our homes and our D groups. As followers of Jesus who know the end of the story and how it's all going to play out, we should be people who are obsessed with the happily ever after. If we're not convinced that this is how the story is going to end, then what is our faith even for? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our eyes are not fixed on the ending, if that's not the goal that we're working toward and what's keeping us motivated and full of hope through the highs and the lows of life, then we've missed the whole point of our faith. We don't understand God or Jesus or the Bible at all. Imagine this. Imagine you walk into a library. You pull a book off the shelf that you've never read before, and you go up to the librarian to ask them about it. You ask the librarian to tell you about the book, and they say, oh, yes, that book is my favorite. It's what I base my life on. You're really intrigued now, so you ask them to outline the plot for you, and then things get weird. They're only able to tell you three quarters of the story. Maybe they haven't read the ending before, or there were some details in there that they didn't understand, so they can't articulate it to you. Either way, I think pretty quickly you would put the book back on the shelf and walk out not interested in that book and definitely skeptical of that librarian. Friends, let's not be that librarian. If someone comes up to you and says, what's the Bible all about? Or what's your faith about? What's the goal of being a Christian? Why bother following Jesus? You've got to be able to tell them the end of the story. Maybe this is all new to you. Maybe you've just started going to church or coming back to faith and you're just now learning the storyline of the Bible for the first time. And that's awesome. We're so glad that you're here. I'd encourage you to jump in with us next year as we read the Bible in a year. We're doing it together because we all have more that we can learn from reading the Bible. Scott is even going to lead a D group for anyone who wants to join that will walk you through the Bible. So he'll answer all the questions you have about every part of the Bible next year. So be sure to sign up for that in a few weeks. My caution is for those who say they've been following Jesus for a long time, who would hold up the Bible and say, it's what I base my life on, and yet they can't articulate the ending. Please, 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 let's fix our eyes on the end of the story. Let's get to know it so that it's not scary or intimidating when people ask us to describe it. This is what Advent is all about. Jesus is coming back. When he does, he's going to make everything new and good again, and we're going to live with God face-to-face -face in a world that is perfect and amazing the way it was always meant to be. Are you excited about the happily ever after? Are you living now, yes, mourning and weeping because it's not here yet, but at the same time being filled to the brim with hope and in just anticipation because you know that it's coming? How do we keep watch? We keep weeping and we keep hoping. Third suggestion, keep looking for the hope that's in this world now. Look for glimpses now of God's work in our world and in our lives. In the happily ever after, we'll live in a world where everything and everyone reflects God's character fully. We long for Jesus to come back, but we also don't have to just twiddle our thumbs while we wait. Remember, it's inaugurated eschatology, already and not yet. We look forward to being with God forever, but God is already with us in part through the Holy Spirit. We can look for glimpses of beauty, truth, and goodness in this world now. Those are reflections of who God is. 
Or remember the fruit of the Spirit? That reminds us what God is like. We can look for glimpses of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wherever those things are, that's God at work. What if we all lived our lives like we were on a scavenger hunt, searching for glimpses of God's goodness, noticing the things in this world that are a taste of what to come and being thankful for them? Let's keep watch for the glimpses of hope in this world now. And finally, how do we keep watch? Keep being the hope that's in this world now. We are called to be God's light in a sometimes dark world. This world is dark, and yet there is still light. Jesus came and brought the light. One day he'll come back, and there will be no more darkness. But we are to be little pockets of light now in the midst of the darkness. In John 8, 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But in Matthew, Jesus also says to the crowds of people listening to his teaching, you are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, and he's called us likewise to be the light of the world. Friends, Jesus is coming back. For now, we wait, but our waiting will not be forever. As we wait, we mourn that this world is still dark, and yet we don't live as people without hope. We are called to be light and to show this world who God is and what he's like. And as we keep watch for Jesus' advent, we eagerly anticipate the happily ever after that is to come, the end of the story that will usher in a brand new beginning. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this life is not all there is. I thank you that you have so much good in store for us if we would just hang on. I pray that you will help us to wait well. Pray that you will show us who you are so that we can be that reflection of you in this world. We need more of your light, Jesus. Help us to be that light. In Jesus' name, amen.